The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn in your New Testaments to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is where we'll begin this morning. It's a blessing to be with everyone this morning. I've been so encouraged by your presence and the worship this morning and edified. I hope that you'll be edified by this lesson this morning as well. Matthew chapter 18. Recently, um, my sister just had her second child, um, my first nephew by blood, although I came into by marriage a few other nephews on Zoe's side of the family. Um, and me and Zoe are so blessed to be filled with so many small children around us that we can call nieces and nephews and, and shower blessings and love upon them. Um, but because of that and the fact that my sister-in-law Rachel is due for her fourth child um, in the coming year, and also Beth, um, that's Zoe's other sister, is also due to have another child, her second. We've got babies on the mind, little kids on the mind, and it's such a wonderful and happy thing. We just recently got to go and meet Tucker. That's Kaylee, my sister's second child, her first son, and we got to enjoy some time there and, and meeting him and, and spending time with also my, my niece, Sawyer. Um, and I say that because when you're with little children, it's a, it's a very unique and wonderful experience especially for those of us as Christians who are spiritually minded, because when, when you start to really interact with those children, you can see their innocence, you can see their purity, you can see their, their love and care and concern, you can, you can just see how unaffected by things they are in the world, and you know that they're going to grow up and have to cope with all the things that we have to cope with as adults, but in a sense, it's, it's a very real blessing to be able to have that experience with children and there's a lot that we can learn from them and Jesus shows that in Matthew the 18th chapter how we can learn great and deep spiritual truths and characteristics by little children and really what he does is he calls us to be like little children this just goes to show that our perspectives and ideas are not generally God's, that his ways are higher than our ways and greater than our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, that we must become fools in order to become wise. Because a lot of the things that we would consider great or valuable and beneficial are not the things that God would consider those things. For example, in Matthew the 18th chapter in verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus with a question saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's a little more detail that is described for us in other gospel accounts, but we'll just look at this one. We know they were arguing. They were disputing amongst themselves. Who's the greatest? I'm going to be the greatest. You're going to be the greatest. The sons of thunder earlier in the gospels had their mother come to Jesus and, and ask him if they would be able to sit one on his right hand and one on his left hand in the kingdom. They wanted to be great. They wanted to be renowned in this new kingdom that they anticipated but Jesus exposes their folly. He exposes their misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom. But even more so, he exposes their ignorance of what true greatness is. And it's something that would, I think, blow their minds. It's something revolutionary even for us when we come to understand and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that the things that are great to Jesus and to God seem insignificant and lesser to the average human being. And this is something the disciples would come to know. As they disputed about who is greatest, and they asked Jesus who is greatest in the kingdom, especially concerning themselves as apostles, Jesus called a little child to him. And then he set him in the midst of them and said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to be the greatest? And it's probably that they had in their mind this idea of a physical kingdom, thus political power. Who's going to be greatest in this kingdom? Who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man? Who's going to be the one everyone looks up to before they look up to Jesus or, or after they look up to Jesus? If you think of Jesus as the king, they're going to think of this apostle as his right-hand man. Who's going to be the greatest? And first he says, you can't even enter this kingdom unless you become as a little child. In Matthew 19, in that next chapter, in verse 13, little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them, again, not understanding the value that little children carry. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Essentially what Jesus is saying is that you've got to be turning back to the state you were in one way or the other as you were a little child in order to even enter the kingdom. And he explains why in verse 4, and a characteristic of humility as he discusses. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one of uh, one little child like this in my name receives me. What he does here is he exposes their misunderstanding of greatness because he shows that humility is greatness in the kingdom. But even furthermore, he misunder or he shows them the, the difference in the reality of this kingdom. Notice he does not say that there will be one that is greatest in the kingdom. He says, whoever does this will be greatest, which implies that many people can do it, whoever. And if many people do it, those people are greatest. And what it really does is it levels the playing field. If you become humble in the kingdom, you will be called great. But not just you, the person next to you who has humbled themselves. So these disciples who are trying to one-up each other and say, I am number one, I'm Jesus' right-hand man, are shown that not only... Should they be humble as opposed to the pride that they obviously exhibited? But they're to be shown that you won't even be greater than those who are not apostles in this kingdom. You'll certainly have a wonderful role to fulfill. But if not only you have to be humble to enter the kingdom, but when you're humble in the kingdom, you are greatest, that means everyone that's in the kingdom, in their humility, will be called great. Not just you, not just you, not just you, but all those who are a part of the kingdom. And I think certainly there are a couple of specific truths about children that we can learn from and we can possess to be better children of God ourselves. But there are other matters about children that I certainly think we should consider and we can learn from and take into our own person and our lives. Firstly, notice the primary consideration of Jesus in Matthew 18. It's that of humility. That's what he says in the context. The dispute was who was the greatest. And so he called a child to them, and this is the reason he called a child to them, to show them that humility is key. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, he says, Whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He shows that humility is a very necessary component to enter the kingdom. You can't even be a part of this great kingdom much less be the greatest in this great kingdom unless you become like a little child. 
And he says converted. He's suggesting that you turn back to states that you possessed as a child. He's not saying in totality. He's not saying I want you to be ignorant like children are ignorant. He's not saying I want you to be naive like children are naive. He's saying if you want to enter the kingdom, there is a certain characteristic of a child that you need to possess. Remember like remember what you were and how you were when you were a child. You can't be a part of this kingdom unless you turn back to that way. And specifically, he mentions humility. Jesus was a perfect textbook example of possessing humility and being great because of it. We remember he washed his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. We remember what he taught them following. Do you know, do you know what I have done to you? John 13 and verse 12. You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. He's showing them who he is, how great he is. I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent him greater or sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Certainly shows the necessary expression of love and service toward one another, but it's in a spirit of humility. And that typified or typified what we see in Philippians 2, 8, that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He told Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And he spoke concerning essentially his death on the cross and the washing away of Peter's sins. That was done, though, in a spirit of humility. We're called to be like little children and that children are humble. And so we must be humble as well. Firstly, we need to be humble before God. And John, the fourth chapter in verse 10 or James, the fourth chapter in verse 10, excuse me. James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The disciples were wanted to be lifted up by their own merits or whatever it may be, their own ideas. Who's the greatest, Jesus? And they all had their own ideas. Most likely, they all had the idea that they were themselves the greatest. But it was by God's standard that they would be called great. And what Jesus called them to is a humility that would make them great in the kingdom. And in that way, God lifts us up. Who is greater than one who has had their sins forgiven and is now called a child of God? But who has that blessing except he who humbles himself before God? That's the very context. The humility that we're called to before God, whereby he lifts us up as a humility spiritually. In Matthew, the fifth chapter in the Beatitudes in verse three, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, those who are blessed are those who understand they are spiritually bankrupt. That there's nothing they could do for themselves. They sin and fall short of the glory of God, and there's only one that can save them. So I'm going to recognize my state of depravity because I've chosen to sin, and I'm going to turn to the one who can forgive me of those sins. James 4 explains in verse 7, Therefore, submit to God. This is the context. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. How? Submit to God. Resist from the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Let go of your pride. Admit your wrongs. Turn away from those wrongs. And come before God in submissive obedience so that he can take your sins away. One of the reasons why humility is a prerequisite to the entrance of the kingdom and a condition of greatness in the kingdom is because the kingdom is comprised of those who are saved. And the whole idea of salvation discredits any kind of pride and idea of merit. 
That's what we read in Romans, the fourth chapter. Abraham was justified by faith. So what does he have to boast about? Nothing before God. The reason we need salvation, saving, is because we failed by sinning and we cannot save ourselves. Who's going to be arrogant in that position? Humility is what we're called to before God, but also translating into that would be a humility before each other. I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. And we know that because we both had to humble ourselves before God to be saved. And so we've both failed, maybe in different ways and in different situations. But sin is sin is what the gospel says. And so if we're humble before God, we certainly need to be before each other. That's the only logical thing. The brethren in Colossae in Colossians 3.12 were called to humility. And Paul said, therefore, as the elect of God, this is characteristic as those who are chosen in Christ, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. And those kinds of characteristics, humility included, are necessary to fulfill what is said in verse 13. You bear with one another and you forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Notice that that idea of forgiveness as it's paralleled with the forgiveness of Christ. You forgive as Christ forgave you. And sometimes forgiveness is hard ultimately because of our pride. We think we should not forgive that person. Maybe we think that they've done something greater than what we would have ever done. Or maybe we think that we're, we're better than them because they've done something wrong to us or whatever it may be. But what Jesus calls us back to is a spirit of humility in the sense of Christ forgave you. And you know what you've done. And if Christ forgave you and Christ forgave that person, aren't we logically to forgive each other? Humility is the key. And that would pervade into any other topic of members of Christ's body. Notice in Ephesians 4 in verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. As a calling of a Christian. Anything and everything about Christianity is included in that phrase. The worthiness of our calling walking in that way. But how do we do that? With all lowliness with gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, ultimately endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That lowliness, humility, would especially be key in the church in Ephesus as we see the theme of that epistle is that salvation in Christ and the membership of the church that both Jew and Gentile, chapter 2 and chapter 3 emphasize, are members of, fellow citizens of the kingdom of God and therefore heirs of that promise. Those Jews would have pride that they would need to dispel from their lives and they would need to be humble, not just before God, but before the Gentiles, be lowly before them. Because you're a child of God just like I am. It would be impossible to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace without humility. And so to that we're called. But I think another thing inherent within the passage of Matthew 18 concerning the example of children is purity. Some would suggest in the world who believe in inherited depravity and original sin that Jesus was not speaking of purity because children are sinners as they inherit Adam's sin. He couldn't have been speaking of purity because we know that we inherit Adam's sin, although that is not the truth, but they would suggest that in this passage. But they were speaking of humility is what they'll suggest. That was Jesus' main point, certainly was his main point, but they would suggest it's his only point. But I want us to notice a few things in this passage which show that that is not the case. Because in Matthew 18 and verse 1, he talks about the greatness. And the reason that they were disputing about greatness was pride. And at the seat of every sin is pride. And we understand that. It's about me and not about God. That's why we sin. 
But notice he not only mentions humility in conjunction with the discussion of children in verse 4, but in verse 5 he utters an impressive phrase. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. How could that be so if children were guilty of sin? How could it be so that it's just like receiving Jesus when we receive a child if Jesus is sinless but children are guilty of sin? He's calling them not only to humility, but he's pointing out the purity of children. Become like a child to enter the kingdom. We enter the kingdom by being forgiven of our sins. You can't be in the kingdom without being pure. And as soon as we sin, we're separated from God, which means we're separated from his kingdom. Now we can come back into that forgiveness and purity, but the essence of this concept regards and requires purity. We receive a child, we receive Jesus. Because they're in fellowship with Jesus. Notice verse 6, he goes on. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. The suggestion is these little ones are without sin, and if you cause them to sin, then it's wrong, and you are in a terrible state. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to the man through whom that offense comes. I think that he especially emphasizes a spiritual little one in this passage. But if his logic is sound, it has to resonate with the truth of literal children. Literal children are without sin. Those who are babes in Christ, who have been washed in the blood of the dear Son of God afresh, have had their sins taken away. And if you cause one of those little ones to stumble, woe is you. And it would be the same if you cause one of those little children to stumble, woe is you, but it's because they're pure and innocent. If you corrupt them with your bad example, woe is you. Again, from verse 14 of Matthew 19, we know that purity is an example of this because he says, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Is the kingdom of heaven comprised of sinners? The kingdom of heaven is comprised of those who have been forgiven of their sins who are no longer sinning. They're dead to sin. Romans 6 speaks to that. Certainly it's comprised of sinners in the sense of sinners once forgiven. But it's not comprised of people who are guilty. It's comprised of people who have been forgiven of that guilt. Jesus is calling them to humility, certainly. He's also calling us to a purity that is inherent within children. And we see that compared with our spiritual fam familial ties to Jesus in First John 3 and verse 2. Beloved, we are now children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So what about that? John says this, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. The context of 1 John is about how they can know that they're children of God and the way you know you're a child of God is by practicing righteousness as he is righteous, by abstaining from sin as he is sinless, by being pure as he is pure. Children of God are called to purity. In Romans, the 16th chapter in verse 19, there's an innocent phrase that is very powerful that the Apostle Paul noted. Their obedience has become known to all, but notice he says, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. He's not calling us to ignorance. He's not calling us to be naive. He's calling us to be innocent or free from evil matters. You're simple in that regard. Not that you don't know it exists, but you're not involved in it. You don't know it in that intimate participation sense. You're simple 
It's from a Greek word, which means to be unmixed. It's from A, which is negative, and the latter part of that conjunction means to be mixed. It is without mixture. You are pure, is what it's saying. You're wise concerning good. You know what is good, and you're doing what is good, and you're intimately associated with what is good. But the evil things in the world you are completely unfamiliar with insofar as your practice is concerned. You're pure, unmixed. Just like children, they're simple concerning evil, aren't they? We're called to that purity. In Matthew 5 and verse 8, again in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Not anyone else. Because as 1 Peter 1 and verse 15 says, We're called to holiness as God is holy. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. God is separate and apart from all that is sin. And in order to see Him in the end, we're called to act purity in that state of a child that is free from that evil. Thirdly, though, we get into some concepts we know that are true of children that Jesus doesn't necessarily deal with in Matthew the 18th chapter. Nevertheless, they ring true. And I think it's wise for us to observe the characteristics of children beyond humility and purity because we know as innocent children who are indeed in fellowship with God, whom he receives and as such are the kingdom of heaven, there must be more to learn from them than simply these two things. I think one of those things is love. Consider the love of a child, the fact that it's unconditional. And we're not talking about the fact that some children can be hesitant, some children can be more uh, timid than other children, some children can, can be more scared than other children, but just generally speaking, children are very loving. And that's actually one of the reasons why they're so vulnerable. That's one of the reasons why we've got to tell children don't talk to strangers because they're so trusting and loving that they're liable to go up to a kidnapper and talk to that individual. While it may be dangerous and scary and why we need to keep a rein on our children, it's also a quality that is very admirable. Their love is unconditional. I saw an example of this not long ago uh, I think it's been shared throughout social media several times, but it's two children in school, two little children, and one is a white child and one is a black child, and the quote reads, as they're both buzzhead, that they got the same haircut so the teacher couldn't tell them apart, and they're just as happy as they could be. There's not a thing that's keeping them from expressing their friendship and love toward each other, and it's incredible that we see that expressed in this world in an opposite way, where simply because the skin color is different, there is not that camaraderie and friendship and love expressed. And it's inexcusable. Jesus calls us to love as children. It's unconditional. It's one that is beyond skin. It's deeper than what is surface. It's an understanding that we're all part of God's creation. And really it's a debt we owe. Consider that Romans 13 and verse 8 tells us that's a debt we owe. Oh, no one, anything except to love one another, for he who loves another is fulfilled the law. And essentially that's one of the reasons. We're all called to fulfill the law of Christ, whether anybody is obedient to it or whether we are obedient to it. Every man on earth is called to obey God's law. And because of that, we're indebted to one another because the law speaks of love for neighbor. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Children love 
so freely and easily. And sometimes it's so hard for us to love. But we need to learn from them. We're called even to the high standard of loving all the people in the world. Not loving what they're doing, but loving their souls. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives that as, as an example. When you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Bible says love your neighbor, but it does not say hate your enemy. That was a tradition. But I say to you, love your enemies, Jesus says. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Do good to those who hate you. And do pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And notice in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? It's easy to love those who are of our own family, love those who are our friends, love those who we're familiar with, who we have things in common with, who we've grown up with, whatever it may be. But what does that express? It's a good thing. But what really strength of character does that express? Everyone loves their family. Everyone loves their friends. Everyone loves their comrades. Do not even the tax collectors do the same, he says. But notice this. If you greet your brethren only, what do you have more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, that is complete, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's not speaking of perfection of flawlessness, but teleos is the word, and it means completeness, a maturity, a wholeness. That means you not only just love incompletely by loving your family or your neighbor and not loving your enemy, but you love everyone. And I think that's a characteristic that children display. And we certainly ought to love the brethren. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, we see that that's inherent within our baptism and our entrance into the kingdom. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. We've got to turn back to become as a little child in our love toward one another because while we're unified in the Spirit in the church, we're not unified in the flesh. We're of different families, we're of different backgrounds, we're of different races, we're from different cultures, we're from different ideas and things that we like and hobbies and all of these things, we're different. But we're not just called to serve one another and go along to get along, but not really actually get along with each other. That love here is not simply the agapeo love, which is a love of service, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're called to a Philadelphia love. That's a brotherly love, and it's an affectionate type of love. We do get along, and we, we, we focus on that until we can get along. And little insignificant things should not keep us from that. It doesn't keep it from children. If one child wrongs another child, or, or one child thinks something about another child, or hears something about another child, and, and that's cleared up, or whatever it may be, it, it passes pretty easily, and they start getting along again. Now, with children, something may come up right away that jeopardizes that situation. But it seems that they forget so easily, and they, they show that expression so easily. And that's what we're called to Notice the antithesis of that in Galatians 5 and the warning that Paul gives. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice this though. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. That's a church that wasn't getting along and Peter or Paul warned about that. Albert Barnes comments on this verse in his commentary and he says, the readiest way to destroy the spirituality of a church and to annihilate the influence of religion is to excite a spirit of contention. It means whatever it may be, it can be something that seems so insignificant when members of the church don't get along, destruction is soon to follow because unity is jeopardized in that. That's why that humility is called to in Colossians 3 
But on top of that, in verse 14, he says, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body. And be thankful. We should love each other as children love others. I think also, though, we see in children an inherent quality of eagerness for growth and approval. No child wants to just sit there and not improve on anything. When a child starts to walk, generally speaking, I know sometimes early on, Easton didn't want to walk much, right, Logan? But generally speaking, when a child learns how to walk, you're not going to be able to pick that child up. Get me down. I want down. I want down because I want to progress. I've learned something new and I want to explore now. I'm a little bit higher off the ground. I can reach new things. I've got a different capability now and I want to explore that. And not only that, when those child children walk, we clap and we approve of them and they soak that up like a sponge and they seek more opportunities for that. Children are eager for that. And it seems that as we grow up and get older, those things start to fade. And what Jesus calls us to is turn back to that eagerness for growth and approval. You don't see little children who just want to sit there and stay as they are. They're always wanting to do more. They're wanting to to adventure out. And yet so often, sadly, you see members of the church who don't want to grow. They want to stay where they are. God says that's unacceptable. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Lay aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and all evil speaking, and as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Again, children are called as an example. You see how much a baby longs for a mother's milk and how essential it is to their growth. They'll cry for it. You be like that with the word of God is what Peter by inspiration is saying. You've tasted it's gracious. Why not continue to drink from that spring of life? In Hebrews 6 and verse 1, after reproving those brethren of not being teachers, although they should have been teachers by this time, he says in verse 1, therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, that's the milk of the word, let us go on to perfection, that's maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance and dead works and faith toward God and so on and so forth. We need to be eager about going on to that maturity, learning new things, deeper things, and and serving God in new and deeper ways, growing as a child. And you know what? Paul expressed that in his seeking approval for God and not man. We want to grow, ultimately, be to, to be approved of God. We want to, to be closer to God, to be stronger before God, so that God can look down on us and, and be approved of us, but ultimately, in the end, utter those words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 and verse 10 says, I don't seek to please men, for if I please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He did not seek the approval of men. He sought the approval of God. Notice in 1 Corinthians 4 and verses 2 through 5 where he discusses stewardship that is required and stewards that they be found faithful. He says, I don't care what you're judging me about because I don't even judge myself, but I'm judged by the Lord. Verse 5, therefore... Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. This is a man speaking to people who had a certain sect called the Paulines. I'm of Paul. And certainly he was being praised by them. And he said, I don't care what you say about me. I don't care about your approval. In fact, he's condemning them and reproving them for that misthought and misapplication of Scripture. Instead, he says, I want my praise to come from God. Notice what that approval takes, though. 
It takes that diligence. It takes that growth. It takes that effort that we talked about. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4, Paul tells Timothy to be strong in the grace. And then he says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We're trying to please our king, our commander, our general. And you don't worry about the cares of this life to please him. You worry about the cares of the military, spiritually speaking. You worry about what he's telling you to do. You want to please him. You give effort to his work. Essentially, that scene in verse 15 when he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved of God, a worker that does not need to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Oh, that we were more like children, seeking to grow and be approved of God. We do that by diligent study and application. You know, another admirable quality of children is that they are fully dependent and therefore they fully trust. Children cannot do anything for themselves. We try to, to raise them up to, to start taking care of themselves and doing those things, preparing them for independency. But the whole point of us trying to teach them that implies that they can't do it themselves in the first place. They don't know. You leave a child to himself, and that child will eventually vanish away. They need care. They're fully dependent. And people are arrested for negligence. People are looked down on for abandoning their children. Why? Because they can't do it by themselves. They need the parent. And children inherently understand that. You may see teenagers rebelling and seeking independence, but you don't see a little child doing that. They rebel in certain ways and they're corrected, but they're not suggesting that they can do it on their own. They're just going beyond the boundaries their parents have set in their exploration of this new world. But you'd better believe they know that mom and dad are what gives me these things because I go to them asking for those things. They're dependent on mom and dad. And because of that, they trust them. They're so trustworthy. That's another one of those qualities that needs to be, you know, looked at with concern because they can be trusting of people they shouldn't be trusting. You think of their relationship with their parents. They fully depend on their parents and therefore they fully trust in them. We would do well to, in our independent adult state, remember a time when there was nothing independent about us where we completely and totally relied upon our caregivers, mom and dad, whoever it was that was our guardian for our care, for our food, for our, our provisions. And that's what God expects us to be like before him. I fully depend on God and therefore I fully trust in him. We certainly depend on him spiritually. That's the point of the gospel. You can't be saved by yourself. You need God to save you. And in Romans, the third chapter, that dependency and that trust are put together. That righteousness apart from the law is revealed. It's the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 22, because all have sinned, you depend on him now and you're justified by, freely by his grace. This is how of Jesus Christ, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Notice this, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's saying the blood of Christ washes away your sins. It appeases God's judicial wrath. That's the dependency. You can't do it without Jesus' blood. But it only affects that on the people who trust in it, have faith in it. You depend on it and you trust in Jesus' blood. 
And once you've depended on that and trusted in Jesus' blood, you also understand that you cannot live life before him successfully without continually fully depending upon him. Jeremiah 10.23 says, The way of man is not in himself. Proverbs 14 and verse 12 explains why. Because the end may be death. And in Psalm 119 and 105, we see our dependency on God's word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, it's even true for physical necessities. James 1 and verse 17 says of the father of lights that everything good and perfect comes from him. Certainly includes spiritual things, but it also includes the things we rely upon physically. And we trust in God since we fully depend on him. We trust in him to keep us upright. 1 John 1 and verse 9 talks about how we come to him, trusting him as we confess our sins so that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, knowing in chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2 that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he's the propitiation for our sins. Yes, Jude verse 24 says he is able to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We depend on him to keep us spiritually upright. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, he committed himself to him who can keep what he has committed to him until that day. Spiritually throughout his life, Jesus was able to keep Paul upright, and at the end he was able to present him upright. We also trust in God for our physical necessities. We fully depend on him, and that should expel any worry or doubt in our lives. When we are so concerned with where our next meal is coming from, and we're so concerned with what we're going to put on, and we're so concerned about how the next bill is going to be paid, where it affects us in such an emotional and stressful way where we start neglecting the weightier spiritual matters of this life, where it actually causes our walk with Jesus to waver, we need to remember how we were as children before our parents. Never once in my entire life did I worry about the next meal. Did I worry about whether I would have a roof over my head? Did I worry about the clothes on my back? I know that's not something that everyone is blessed to have, but even then, children are without worry in so many different ways. And if there ever was a time where I should have been worried, where maybe we were in a financial bind, whatever it may have been, I didn't worry because I trusted in my parents. And that's what we're called to. In Matthew 6, 31, Jesus said, Therefore do not worry, saying, what, will, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles see, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But this is what you do. Trust in God. How? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Certainly, children are fully dependent, and because of that, they're fully trusting. God wants us to be before him like little children and all things fully depending upon him and fully trusting him to provide us those things. And lastly, I think we see that children have an inherent quality of contentment. Certainly in their young age, they have to grapple with the struggle to grow through selfishness. The world's all about that little child. And then they have to share with their friends their toys and all of those kinds of things. And maybe they want what that other person has but really when it comes down to it, they have an inherent quality of contentment. That's why you can get this children, this child, this, this huge box. Maybe it's a, a, a playground set that came in this huge box and the father spent 
two days worth of putting that little playground together. And when the playground is finished, the child's over there in that dumb little box playing with it. Just as content with the box as he is with the playground. You can give any other kind of example. That's the quality of children. They're so content. And you see it portrayed in in some other aspects of life. Perhaps a parent is worried about what that child is going to receive for for Christmas or their birthday. I know they want this and I'm I'm so worried about getting them some awesome gift to be such a good parent. And you give that gift to the child and they forget about it the next day. Or maybe you're not able to give that gift to the child and you give them something else and their face lights up just as much as it would have lighted up with some other gift. Because children are content. We should learn from that. Because there's a real danger of discontentment. Again, in Matthew chapter 6, concerning those who are worrisome, he said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Because people were discontent with the money they had, they sought riches in ways which were immoral. They started trying to serve riches and God at the same time. And he says, you can't do that. There's a danger there. In Hebrews 13 and verse 5, they're called to contentment because... They are to be without covetousness. So be content with such things as you have, or else you'll be covetous. Because he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. To avoid covetousness, be content with what you have. And we can do that, as Paul says, verse 13 of Philippians 4, through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context. He tells them, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. And he explains, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Essentially what Paul is saying is that it doesn't matter what happens to me in this life physically. What I have, what I don't have, I'm always content because of what I have in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 12, Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's sufficient. I'm content with what I have in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, or 1 Timothy 6, rather, in verse 6, we're given the example of those who love riches to avoid such. And the explanation is that godliness with contentment is great gain. Here's the reason. But we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, the bare necessities of life, with these we shall be content. Oh, that we would understand the spiritual treasures we have in Christ and just not worry about what we don't have or what we're going to have or what we do have. But be as a little child and be content with what we have in Christ. That's eternal. It will not fade away. It's promised to us. And with that, we should be content. There are a lot of things that we could talk about that are characteristics of children that we would be called to by our Lord to observe and conform to. And I hope that these were of benefit to you. And I encourage us all to to be like a little child, as Jesus calls us to. If you're here this morning and not obeyed the gospel, we want you to become a little child. You can be born again. Certainly not of the flesh, that's impossible, but more importantly, of the Spirit. And that's by being baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of your sins. And you can be a new child of God. You may be a child of God by creation, but you're not a child of God spiritually until you are born again. And that's the invitation we extend to you. If you have obeyed the gospel, though, 
and you've fallen short in any sense or, or fashion, whatever it is that troubles you and whatever assistance you need. You have your brothers and sisters in Christ that can aid you and your Father in heaven especially that can help you. And we extend the invitation to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.